Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Andy Fletcher. Andy is fellow northerner. He's from Teesside. And he said before we started talking that he's not the entrepreneur with the vision. He's the guy that makes the vision a reality. We stay away mostly from his earlier work as an accountant or working on mergers and acquisitions or boards and IPO. And we dive into what he now does, which is runs a theatrical production company that does productions for two-year-olds. He's currently got Bing and the Night Garden in production around the country. Uh, We talk a little bit about his future projects, talk about disasters that nearly stopped the whole thing rolling out, how he ended up in this business. And we look for some commonalities that across various industries, particularly talking about uh, how he's taken maybe the easy jet ticketing model and broader to theatre in a revolutionary way in terms of yield management. And we then get into some book recommendations towards the end, not traditional business books, but more how you can take something from a business perspective from an autobiography or, or a sports documentary. Great conversation with Andy. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm Andy Fletcher. I am originally from the north of England, but I'm now based in London. I am a chartered accountant by training. I have an MBA from London Business School, and I have, I think, what can best be described as a fairly eclectic career path to date, which has been very educational, uh, starting with uh, some very big companies and currently uh, with some very small companies, but, you know, enjoyable at each stage. I suppose you must prefer small companies, otherwise you might still be in big companies. Well, it's an interesting one. I, I, I look at the decision point where I left what was my last big company, which was Viacom. And at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. I, I look back at how my successor into my job developed his job. And <laughs> what he's doing now is mind-blowingly interesting and uh, involves one of the world's biggest football clubs. So part of me thinks, hmm, maybe I should have stayed there after all. <laughs> but no, at the same time, it was right. I, I think I, I suit a smaller, more dynamic, less regimented environment in the sense of the decision-making is, I'm very close to the key decision-making, if not making it myself. And that means you live and die by your decisions. You don't necessarily live and die by committees and structures and things well outside your pay grade or control. You have to be able to put through what you think is the right thing. And that, that I think I prefer. I think it's a degree of control and responsibility that you get in a, a smaller environment that you don't have in some of the larger jobs. What are the small companies that you're involved in at the moment? My core is around theatre production, uh, children's theatre, operating um, a a couple of production companies. So we have two 
shows which tour the UK at the moment based on children's TV programs. We are now developing a ticketing agency business on the side of that because we've accumulated a lot of very relevant data over the last 10 years. We've sold about 1.2 million tickets. So that's about half a million transactions. Those people like to communicate with us and they like our advice on buying tickets for their families. So we are looking at developing a ticket business on the side of what we're doing. And we've also developed a crew business. So we supply the kind of staff to other theatre producers that we took a long time to find ourselves. We've managed to find some great people who were working on stuff for us who then wanted to set themselves up. So we helped them set up their own business, gave them some equity in it, and give them the management experience while they go off and knock down walls getting new business in. So um, that's all very interesting. I tend to play the, the overarching role of commercial director across those businesses. So I'm very much helping them negotiate the minefields of banks and of supply agreements and all of those kind of things. And also at the same time, questioning why something that seems like such a good idea isn't or is, you know, being that sort of challenge, if you like, that mentor, that gray hair, even though obviously I haven't got any, that uh, is, I think, important for enthusiastic visionary entrepreneurs to have in have up their sleeve. Because if they don't, they'll, they might get lucky and get it all right, but they usually don't. It's interesting. You you helped the people who used to be your employees set up their own business. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they were, they were. We used to use a crew business to, to an outsourced crew business. They uh-huh. worked for that crew business and were very unhappy with how that was operating and how they were working within it. So they decided the three key people there that we had a huge amount of time for decided that they were all leaving to get ordinary jobs as they called it and we said well that's crazy part of our ip sits in your heads in terms of how we assemble and manage our our infrastructure there's got to be a different way why don't you run your own company i said well they said yes we'd love to but we don't know how to and said well bingo that's the bit i can help you with is structuring it and getting you some investment and helping you set up and run and manage a business and not fall into all the obvious pitfalls what i can't do is run a crew you know is climb a ladder and put lights up or build a stage or you know put the signs up at silverstone race circuit or something like that which is all of the sort of things they're now doing they were brilliant at developing that we gave them the maturity to to be brave enough to set off running without do you part own that business or you were just within within our structure um one of our companies owns a third of that business we have an equity stake the three guys each have a decent equity stake and obviously the people who put in the seed capital have a stake as well so it's a nice mixture between ourselves for if you like the management expertise and the contacts them as obviously the three guys who really are key to running the business and the investors clearly who put in you know a decent amount of seed capital to get them up and running but you then what you do is i suppose from your perspective notwithstanding that you retain them as a as a supplier to to the theatre business. Well, exactly. For the last two years, they've been ideal for us because we needed their... One of the things we didn't want to lose is their IP and what we did. We had a very complex touring model involving an inflatable theatre and a huge amount of logistics. Uh, it took 23 trucks on average to move us from one site to another, which is bigger than any rock and roll concert, any tour. It was insane. And to, to get that... To finish on a Saturday night in somewhere like West London to open on a Saturday morning in Birmingham takes a lot of planning and management, and they were very good at it. So we didn't want to lose that. Uh, at the same time, 
we couldn't expect them to carry on working in an environment where they where they were deeply unhappy. We helped them through that process. And are they happier now they work for themselves? Well, they still turn up for work. Um, they've just <laughs> finished their second year. They've made profits in each of the years. They've grown their turnover by a decent amount in the second year. It's quite a slow burn process in, in theatre because you have to get into the established situations and, and, and get production managers to change their habits, which is difficult because most production managers, first and foremost, want the job done. They're almost less worried about the budget. The budget is the producer's issue, uh, but it takes quite a ballsy producer to sit there saying, I'm not paying that when the show has to open in 14 hours or something. And, uh, you know, Willy Wonka's glass elevator isn't working, for example, or something like that. And trust me, that's a true story. <laughs> Why are you involved in children's theatre that is as complicated as it takes 26 trucks to move around the country? The great myth of, um, or not myth, the great actually backstory of In the Night Garden, which is the show that had that infrastructure, is that it was written by a, a genius of a man called Andrew Davenport. And Andrew wrote most of the Teletubbies. So that's his track record. He wrote the Teletubbies with Anne Wood. He then wrote all of In the Night Garden, created the whole thing. So if you see the titles of In the Night Garden, everything is him. There are no other writers, uh, sound designers, colour, anything. He did absolutely every aspect of that production and was absolutely hell-bent on the idea that it should not, at least in the short term, go into conventional theatre because for a two-year-old to venture into a conventional theatre is quite a daunting experience. There aren't brilliant toilets in most of our Victorian theatres. There's nowhere to put the buggies it's lots of steps. It's all of those things. My business partner had proposed a, a version of a, a, an experiential thing, come and visit the night garden, come and meet the characters, etc. within these inflatable structures that he'd seen. So he presented that. Andrew Davenport fell madly in love with the idea of an inflatable theatre and announced that we would now do a theatre show because this was the inspiration he was looking for. So that was brilliant, except it made a much more expensive production. To give you an example, the current tour, which is now in live, in normal regular theatres, takes just over one 40-foot truck to move it around the country compared to 23 when we you know it takes us four hours to get the set down as opposed to a week to move it from a to b so it's a hugely different thing to be honest the current show the show itself is wonderful in fact it's probably a better show than the original because we've got more modern technology now better projections and things than we had 10 years ago just the way things have changed but the actual going into our inflatable domes, going into what the children thought was the night garden from opening the front door to going into the auditorium to coming out again. You can't really recreate that in a regular theatre. So it, it is a, it's an interesting compromise after 10 years. But at the same time, the brand is where it is now. And I think it was at the right time for it to to go into smaller venues. And, and but the good thing is it can now go to a lot more venues. Our, our inflatable monster could only really justify itself in big cities it would have to go to somewhere and then sit on the ground for two or three weeks so birmingham manchester two venues in london worked you couldn't take that structure to dunstable for two days or to uh, skegness or to inverness and all the places we're in so we're going to 47 different venues on this tour which of course means that more people get to see it 
which is which is quite nice. So again, it's dynamics. I mean, we the interesting thing for me was apart from all of that was we were the first people in theatre, as far as we're aware, and we're pretty sure we are, to introduce variable pricing, airline pricing models. This is how I can turn theatre into a really dull subject in a heartbeat at a dinner party. <laughs> but actually, the fascinating thing for us was. The first two years, we didn't control our own box office. We had to use the third party to do it, uh, which is fine, but they didn't have the flexibility in their systems to give us what we needed. So from the third year, we implemented our own web-based uh, ticketing solution where we could literally – it allowed us to, if you like, manage the show. So rather than having one show at £10 a ticket that was sold out and another show three hours later at £15 a ticket that was half empty, we'd manage the yield on every individual show based on how many tickets were being sold. So, for example, once you got past a certain number of tickets in the show, the price would go up by a pound. So what you do is you people will come to the website, see a grid of available options, because we'd be typically in a venue for two weeks playing four shows, five shows a day. Mm -hmm. They could pick and they could see where the cheaper seats were, and they would naturally move around. So obviously Saturdays and Sundays were busier, so we priced those higher than we price a Wednesday afternoon. And But what you would see over time is if you sold 80% of all the available tickets across a venue, across two weeks, you would pretty much see that within each individual show, you had a margin of error, which was not far off 80%. So you would literally sell, you would manage your yield, and, and you could do that with pricing in a way that's never been done with theatre before. Is that just because the you had to develop that software, it's, or, is it, or is it a mindset thing? Partly it's a mindset thing. Theatre, um, traditional theatres don't usually have the wherewithal, especially as the way they sell their tickets through different agents. They don't have any one producer or any one venue very rarely has complete control over its inventory and how it works. It, it's such a complex market. And also the technology is way behind with lots of theatres. Lots of theatres can't provide you with an API, for example. So the allocation model which literally is a theatre will give one ticket agency row L, it will give the next one row M, and say, right, sell those, and then come back to us, and we'll give you a little bit more. In the they keep most of the tickets to sell, but they are literally physical blocks of tickets out to other ticket agencies, and then see who can sell them the fastest. It's archaic. It's how conventional theatre still works in many venues, especially outside the West End. Whereas we could literally, with a clean sheet of paper, say, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve the best yield possible, the best cost per head for these seats. But we've got to do it based on demand. If we don't get it right on demand, what we'll do is have too many expensive seats and cheap seats and get the mix wrong. So that was an interesting part, which is nothing you would think to do with theatre in many ways, but it's actually it's how you integrate different paradigms across different industries. Very much it was the easy jet, for want of a better phrase, model. And so you're, you've still got control of your box office when, when you're now going in the traditional venues this time around? We have an element of control over it because we've established our own brand called Family Tickets, which acts as a ticket agency. We manage it. We sell tickets for everything, but what, because we have that, we've been able to integrate basically our website into a lot of the box offices. So we've API'd with people that have never API'd before because they trust us, because they've seen we've been doing this for 10 years. Right. Uh, so without giving any names, we're some of the largest theatre groups who will not normally do anything outside their own box office systems have allowed us to plumb in which is unheard of uh, and is hopefully a sign of the future one day we, we you know, it's got to be a situation where like in lots of industries everyone can just plug into everything else because ultimately you want to sell the tickets 
you know you want to sell them as quickly as possible and if ever if the market is that you have to give that to 20 different agencies to do you know if they're all charging you the same price then you just want to know the ones who can market those tickets the best one of the reasons we like family tickets is we've got half a million families who've opted to receive ticket information from us about family events and similar things. So we think as we go forward, we'll hopefully become the preeminent supplier of family tickets, literally for events, theatre and related things. When you're sitting there with a two-year-old or a five-year-old or a ten-year-old thinking, what on earth am I going to do this wet weekend? <laughs> Rather than think, mm, they'll go on our site and see what they can have bit the theater bit you know an attraction um that kind of thing and that's we're in beta with that one at the minute we're very close to launching the full new development of that which will be very exciting and have you got uh have you got some machine learning in there that's giving you being able to do things differently rather than just say i know there's a two-year-old in this house send a two-year-old stuff we have a degree of that we the great thing is uh, because of the age, the core of our data gathering was around the night garden. So we know that at any one year that data was gathered, there was at least one two-year-old within reason kicking around in that house. Now, obviously, as data ages, it becomes less relevant. But then what you do is you keep re-engaging with people and you keep giving them a reason to want to be involved with you. The good thing is, of course, lots of families came again with the second child or the third child that kind of data refreshes and builds itself. The important thing we, we found is to make sure we're engaging rather than just selling. Quite often we would just be giving, at Christmas every year we do an advent competition and we give stuff away. You don't have to buy any tickets. We just have to be interested in the night garden and people get fridge magnets or stickers or whatever. It's all about, it's part of the marketing obviously, but it's a goodwill kind of thing. I mean, if everyone yeah. had got a fridge magnet and bought a ticket, I'd, uh, I'd be on a desert island somewhere. <laughs> Not quite, but uh, it was a very successful kind of campaign. It's very popular. People write to us saying, "When are you doing the Advent again this year? We love opening the doors every day with the kids and seeing Iggle Piggle or Upsy Daisy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a dual chartered accountant. It's a quite an unusual way of, uh, of earning a living. That's not your only children's show, though, is it? We have something called Bing. Yeah, Bing Bunny. Bing Bunny, exactly. We're doing the live show of that. I'm trying desperately to remember where we open tomorrow with that because we've finished in we've got so many shows running that i can't actually remember on each one and uh, because i'm an idiot i don't actually have the schedule on my desk next to me at the moment but no bing's been an interesting first tour we'll probably see a second tour of bing it's not the brand that night garden is for example it's a very good brand night garden is more of a i'd call it a super brand or a a phenomenon um night garden is something that every you'd really have to stretch it to find a parent of a two-year-old that doesn't know in the night garden it is just in the psyche uh whereas um bing is very popular but it's not as well so bing's been a smaller tour it's been only in traditional theaters that's been a development as well does bing attract a different if night garden is a two-year-old is bing a different age group we were interested actually we, we found that bing actually attracted a broader range. Uh, we were amazed how many people were bringing very small children to see Bing just because they loved Bing. The actual play itself was, to those children, was almost irrelevant. They just kept seeing Bing on stage and clapping. They loved it. <laughs> and then, we were seeing, then we were seeing children of probably four or five or six who were coming along because the parents like Bing is always the naughty little rabbit who learns a lesson, the morality story at the end of the morality tale at the end of Bing. And I think a lot of parents quite like that aspect of it. They kind of, it illustrates, um, 
you know what can happen and what nice people should do rather than what a, a naughty little rabbit might do and i think that's um although of course he's not a rabbit he's a boy um that's the thing you have to remember he's he's actually called bing he i have rabbit's ears but actually he's a boy that's what it says in the style guide and that's what i'm sticking to um, <laughs> I think he looks like a rabbit, but bless me, what do I know? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very good little show. Uh, again, it was uh, we iterated it when we launched it. It needed some changes as we went into it, because by definition, you don't really know how a theatre show is going to be received until you put it in front of an audience. You can have rehearsals, you can have lots of clever people sitting around, but until you actually show it to people. Uh, Night Garden, when we showed it to people, was an absolute phenomenon. We didn't need to make a single change to it. Bing was very popular, but we needed to shorten a little bit of it. We needed to put a little bit different in, move, emphasize characters in a slightly different way, but the kind of things that happens in any uh, show. So we, you know, we learned from that as well. How do you end up in theatre? It's a random thing, isn't it? You go drinking in the wrong pubs. Um, <laughs> my business partner, Andrew Collier, was at Oxford. He started producing when he went there when he was 18. He had a friend who did lots of it who turned out not to want to stick at theatre producing because he became a very, very successful financier in the city. He's done a lot of VC work and many years ago was looking to recruit a commercial CEO for a sports data business, which I had a very good background for at the time. Uh, so I was part of a management buyout team that was going to buy it out. And at the last minute, we were gazumped. So it never happened. But I kept in touch with the mutual friend. And that mutual friend then introduced me to Andrew Collier in 2009, saying, if you have some spare time, my friend has a project. He needs the kind of advice and skill that you've got why don't you see if you're interested? Uh, so we met for a, a coffee in Soho House, as you do, and within five days, we'd been through everything. I thought it was a great idea. We went and signed the contract with BBC Worldwide, as it was then, and found ourselves needing to raise half a million quid in uh, short order. That was fun, but we did it. So that was so that was the that was the night garden. That was the business that became the night garden. And then you then did you then have to design and build the inflatable theatres or everything? There was not you know, military. There was nothing. We it had never been done before. So that from the minute we got the green light, which was by the end of it was probably start of February to opening in July, we had to commission the structures. The thing had to get written, so Andy Davenport had to go and sit. He'd, he'd obviously done TV shows, but they last for 22 minutes. The stage show lasts for 52 minutes, uh, and there are two of them, so two variations on it. So he had to go away and write those. We then had to put the team together to create it, to build it. Nobody knew what it – apart from the characters and vaguely what it looked like on TV, nobody had any idea. And then uh, we had to basically stand in a park in – one of the more interesting parts of Liverpool, just outside Toxteth, and put the whole thing up and see if it worked. We got it up despite appalling weather. We had fantastic people work on it. We were all set to open on Saturday morning, and on Friday night, somebody decided to try and set our skips on fire and burn the thing down. <laughs> um, so... Uh, fortunately, we hadn't left. We were all still in. The, I think they thought everyone had gone. The, uh, and apparently it's a very common thing in certain parts of the country that people decide they like skip fires. So we suddenly found 
there was 10 of us, including our director, two of the producers, a couple of cast members who were far braver than I ever gave them credit for. We had every fire extinguisher known to man, and we were standing basically, at one stage I had a director standing on wooden planks on top of a burning skip trying to put it out. We were all thinking, this is crazy, but you know what? We'll tell him afterwards if he can get that fire out. Because if the fire had gotten any bigger, it would, have, uh, it would have lit a tree that was next to the dome and we'd have lost the lot. We'd have never actually opened. But we did because we got the fire out. I actually had to be up at six the next morning in a taxi because we didn't have a, I didn't have a car in Liverpool to go to every builder's merchants and supplier I could think of within about 10 miles to buy fire extinguishers. So we were fire legal by the time we opened the doors at nine o'clock. there are you have to be open-minded when you take on a small business and everything else you can't just sit in a cabin going i'm sorry i only do the spreadsheets and the payments and the bank reconciliations if it's your business you just make it happen my role is usually more to support the key entrepreneur andrew andrew collier was very much the man who came up with a vision for night garden in its in its current form Uh, and he's a theatrical entrepreneur he's very good but he will be the first to tell you that without, you know, my hand on the tiller, shall we say, you know, we will have gone off sometimes in directions that probably weren't as sustainable. We are, we're a good team. I mean, this is why I've worked with Andrew longer than I think I've worked with anybody else now in this particular role. So it's, uh, it's intriguing. I think every, every visionary entrepreneur needs somebody to help them get stuff done because it's a different skill set. And so has he got some other crazy plans you're about to... Yes, we have we have another we are we have the exclusive rights to another thing I can't tell you about yet. Um, <laughs> we're under a massive NDA. I can tell you it's a, it's based on another TV program, uh-huh. and we're currently establishing how popular that program is going to be. And if it's as popular as some of the other ones, then um, we will be in a very good situation to uh, take that forward. But on that side of, it, I mean, this is this is something that keeps me occupied about two to three days a week. There are other entrepreneurial things that I do as well. But th- that one, if that comes off, then there'll be a phase when I'm much more heavily back involved in this thing again because the new project will be another tent. It will be another. It will be all sorts of logistics and learnings based on nine years in an inflatable. And uh, well, the first learning is we won't be using another inflatable. <laughs> you know, it sounded such a good idea at the time. So we won't be doing that, uh, but we will be doing a portable structure because actually the control you get and the quality of offering you can make when you control the whole environment is just so much better than if you're having to rely on other people's front of house staff, other people's facilities, other people's toilets, anything else like that. If you can't control it, then all you're going to do is get battered for it if it goes wrong. Fantastic. Um, Knowing what you know now, so notwithstanding you'd use tents, not inflatables, that's definitely one of them. When you think back, what do you wish you'd known then you know now? In that project, I think the one thing that we kick ourselves for is that after the first year, we made a conscious effort not to go back to the same places again the second year. We thought, well, we've been there. We were sort of successful. People won't want to come again. But what we forgot, of course, was the, was the underlying, the fundamental aspect of what we do is that we were doing it for two-year-olds. And one thing that two-year-olds do every year is refresh. You have a new audience. What we should have done is just plunked ourselves in the same venues. Year one was a fantastic success. Year two was a disaster in some venues. We lost lots of money because those venues weren't ready for us. Whereas if we'd just gone back to the same venues as we did in year three, 
people were saying, well, we missed you. Why didn't you come back? I had another child to bring. I, my friends <laughs> wanted to see it this year. You know, always be careful that you, when you think you know it all and you've tested everything and you've done it, sometimes there can be an, an underlying point, which is so obvious in hindsight, but just doesn't hit you in the face. The other thing that was I wish we'd had at the time is, since we'd done this in 2010, almost every key person involved has gone from being childless to being parents or grandparents. And that awareness of the young children's market has undoubtedly given us support, confidence. Given All our investors, all our major key investors have all become parents in the period, parents of young children. So they've all been able to bring them, test the product, do all of these things. More importantly, supporters. So some of the other projects that we're, we're looking at now, which are in very early development around the whole children's sector, uh, anything from soft play to all of the activities that kids do that is very fragmented in the UK. We now have people saying, well, you've got a proven track record of entertaining families, of looking after them, of doing it well. What else can you do in this field, which is basically the field of what are we going to do with the kids this weekend? What are we doing with the kids? And all these very fragmented things. So we have, it's very interesting. Having that behind you was something that we didn't have in 2010. And if we just had one person or two people with the smaller, who also had our perspective, I think we'd have learned a lot more quickly. You know, logistically, yes, you think everything will work. There's always something that will go wrong when it's that complex a model. The key is that you learn, and we learned it by accident, unfortunate accidents, is have the right people working with you. Have people who will do it, who buy into it, who will be there at midnight, even though they're not getting paid for it, because they want the show to go on as well. You need It's an old cliche, but it's so true. And I, Unlike so many other businesses or Brexit or anything else, when they say the show must go on, the show opens at 7.30 on a Friday evening or 2.30. It doesn't just go back. It can't, because everyone's got their tickets, everyone's coming people have to see a show at that point. And so to fail to do that is complete business failure in theatre and in, in events. So when you've got that, you, you can't fudge. You have to get it on. That was a really interesting thing because that was the first time I've been in a business like that where it really is. It just happens on time or it doesn't happen. You don't realise until you start going to until you get involved and then you go to other productions people think you wander into west end shows it says 7 30 oh we'll get there 7 45 they won't have started no they will have gone up at 7 30 there will be a massive clock with a stage manager behind and it will be going up bang on time because every i think people don't understand just how regimented and disciplined i think something as fluffy as theater actually is because if you didn't you would just have carnage Again, that was an interesting thing for me to come into that from after a background in other types of media to see that something that I always thought was a bit lovey and a bit chaotic is as professional as anything else I've ever seen, especially when it's done properly. How do you create that culture where people will be still doing it for you at midnight, even if they're not getting paid? How do you, how do you get that out of people? Well, I mean, you know, obviously they won't do it forever if you're not paying them. I mean, <laughs> It's more the crisis moment. What you'll do is you'll get, I hope, we get people and we treat them properly. We pay them properly to start with. We involve them in it. We share the success with them if it is a success. We don't take out failure, our failures on them when it's not. We try and be honest. We 
ask people to help us with the things we can't do because that's why you hire good people. And if people get into it and believe it and then share the pride in doing it properly, they want it to open. If it's partly their responsibility to get the thing up the next morning or to make the changes or to buy the fire extinguishers or whatever it takes, then you have to get them to want to do that, not to sit there at five o'clock going, I'm sorry, yeah, I know you're going to have a disaster tomorrow, but I'm not on tomorrow, so it doesn't matter. We think if, if you treat people sensibly they come i mean for example uh, in the first year we had a cast and a crew of 12 people and we asked them to tour for 14 weeks and they were doing five shows a day for 14 weeks and guess what in year two they all came back on the same wages literally everybody wanted the job back for year two year three they, a lot of them decided they couldn't do a third year because <laughs> Because we did eight venues there in the year two, and it was it was a big tour. We've got people who've worked with us since the 2010 tour. We're fortunate. We, we've we've had, and people who've left us when they've had two or three years and need you know they get an offer they want to develop something. Most of them have come back. We've actually been very lucky. We've had people go leave us, flourish, develop in different roles, and then bring what they've learned back to the family. People say it as a cliche, but we have a family of businesses. They have different outlooks and different strands, and people have different involvements in each of them. But there's very much a, set, a mindset that if one of them needs a bit of a hand or a bit of a, a leg up compared to the other one, people get involved. People know that there is a general reason for doing it. And I think it, I think it just boils down to being reasonable, just being sensible. You know, I'm being straight. If something's going wrong, be fair with people. But, you know, explain if they've done something wrong, why they've done it wrong. And if they've done it brilliantly, the other stepped beyond the call of duty, if you like, then say thank you to them the other way. Make sure that people can see that there's an appreciation of that. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, none of it's rocket science. It's just common sense, hopefully. But we've been doing it 10 years and we're still here. So uh, just about. Well, hopefully we've got more years to come on that. Andy, if you if you think about some books you've read that have had an influence on your career that you think other people should read, what what springs to mind? I'll be honest, I'm not one of these people who reads lots of business books. I mean, I, I did my MBA and you had to read lots of stuff for that and study things and read Harvard Business Study, case reviews and, and all sorts. And, and, you know, you do that because you want to past the qualification i tend to spend my downtime reading rubbish because i like <laughs> i can't say that there is a, a particular business memoir or um you know the most effective tasks of key people or one of those books that changed my life that didn't i think there are interesting snippets you can get out of all sorts of books from uh, you know some of the Political books, some of the political autobiographies can be interesting. Some of the sporting autobiographies can be interesting because you get a mindset of how that person thinks and how, you know, obviously you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt, but the better ones are the ones where they they own up to how they felt and how they dealt with the adversity of a situation because success should be easier to deal with, generally speaking. Although it can lead people to make bigger, get bigger bets and bigger mistakes next time around. It's adversity, I think, is where people usually need the support and mentoring. And, and it's nice to read sometimes, be it anything from 
I don't know, Tony Blair's book, Mrs. Thatcher's book, some of those things where you see people absolutely at the call first, the people that everyone is looking to in the room to answer the question, to give the guidance. And, and how people do that, I think, is for me, has always been interesting. So, again, when you read some of the sporting ones about you know, uh, football management or whatever, um, or even, even to an extent, watch taking it out of the printed form but medium and look at some of the things uh some of the great sports documentaries the great uh, some of the great business documentaries were things like the lions tour and how they got through it the way that those things are to show how a bunch of strong personalities the leadership and how that leadership works in a way that could so easily and often does backfire doesn't work you know because of ego doesn't work because of this to watch people build the team structure or to get people following a leader i think is the kind of thing i, I like to read about I, I can't pinpoint anyone in particular i find those much more interesting and usable than uh -huh. you know, like a particular story of one business and how aig or brands or somebody like that built you know because you're only going to get sugar-coated or a, at least an enhanced version of what happened i think it's good when you can read a warts and all of something where you actually know what really happened because it was played out in public yes i didn't think i was going to enjoy tony burr's uh, autobiography as much as i did i thought i thought it was fascinating i have to say i thought and, and, and read no politics in this whatsoever i thought thatcher's was more interesting ah. because i think the period that they went through was probably close to well, I, I was experiencing a lot more of it as a student to look back and read how she and her team perceived what was going on compared to how it was being played out in the media and to people in different communities i thought was fascinating and to see the to listen to the honest admissions of the vulnerability and the doubt if you like again things that weren't what you saw in public and it's looking at that mix between the two i thought was interesting. and same with same with tony i mean tony's book i thought was more honest than i thought he was going to be i thought thatcher's was seemed to be more not genuine that's not fair i i think a little bit more and again honest isn't the right word i'm so sure it just felt it was a bit more from the heart whereas i think tony's was written i think with there's lots of you know there's still lots of stuff going on that's still relevant to what was in that book and i think that's probably that will doubtless give it a, a different gloss to that but those are the kind of things where when i've read them i thought yeah I, i've learned something from that or I've, oh, that's interesting fantastic two recommendations that's brilliant and the uh, and the documentary on the lions tour was it the Lions Tour or was it the there's the one on the Lions Tour and there's the good one is the I think it's Swing Low it's the one about winning the 2003 World Cup that's uh -huh. that's the other one I'm thinking of as well that's particularly good because again in hindsight you just remember them winning they won all the games it was great England were brilliant but actually when you look at how close they came to I mean Christ even the final how close they actually managed to care to the snatching defeat from the jaws of victory and having as a rugby fan watched them do that in 1991 against Australia at Twickenham to see the strength and character and again to look at some of the mistakes that the 91 team now acknowledged they made compared to the mistakes they were never going to make in 2003 was was fascinating Andy that brilliant thank you for your time today pleasure thank you All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. 
You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively not crap once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.